We're going to read God's word. So let's do that together. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting verse 22. Wives, submit, to your, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one had ever hated their own body, but they fed and cared for their own body, just as Christ does the church. For we are, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on this earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you, each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favouritism with him. Let's bow our heads again and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we're going through Ephesians, you continue to share with us how you are changing the world and you're changing the world one person at a time, one family at a time, one church at a time, one community at a time. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be open to listen to you in all the teachings that you give us and help us to uh, have uh, concern and care for one another as we listen to one another as we work out the challenges that we receive in Scripture. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome along today. Uh, my name's Stuart. If I haven't met you before, I'm one of the pastors here at Soul Revival Church. And I'm very uh, excited that we've been travelling through Ephesians, one of the great works of the Gospel writer Paul, who is giving us a wonderful explanation today about how to put the Bible into practice. 
In fact, one of the uh, outcomes of the last planning day we had, which was two years ago now because of COVID, we haven't done one for two years, but we would always get feedback from people at each planning day. Can you make the sermons practical? And so if you want a practical sermon, today's for you because this is a very uh, detailed uh, and actually very complex theological uh, insight that Paul gives into how to put the gospel in practice in the family. Uh, as we'll find today, there are different interpretations of this passage. There are different uh, ways people interpret it. And it might be a really fun thing after the sermon tonight if you want to come along and talk to me and have a chat about uh, some of those things. I don't have a lot of time to go through all the different interpretations of uh, the passage today. I will touch on a few, but I'm going to pretty much uh, share some of my thoughts on that. And um, we'll, we'll go through that. So please feel free to continue to chat with me about this passage. It's actually quite a, uh, a stimulating conversation we can have around it. Well, where I want to start tonight is I want to say that um, it's funny what you can stumble across in your life. Sometimes you might find treasures in all sorts of places. My story tonight, to start the sermon, is actually about a man who found just such a valuable item at a garage sale in America. Not only was it incredibly valuable, but it was also of historical significance. And it was funny because this precious thing that he found at a garage sale was just piled up on the ground on the concrete of someone's driveway along with the rest of the stuff that this person was getting rid of. This person that found this item was actually <laughs> claiming to be, in the article that I read about him, an expert garage sales person. It's garage sales expert, he called himself. I'm like, wow, okay, cool, no worries. His name's Bruce Batchy, and he spends his Saturday mornings every week driving around looking for garage sales, hoping that he might find something in the ordinary, something extraordinary in the ordinary. According to him, each summer he attends upwards of 5,000 garage sales, I, when I first read that, I thought maybe the guy should get a life. But one day he stopped at a driveway at a garage sale and not even in his wildest dreams was he expecting what he found. Now, the garage sale was held by a lady called Sue McEntee. And Sue McEntee had gone through her stuff and her kids, some of the kids had moved out and there was a whole heap of baseball bats that they'd collected. The kids obviously were into baseball. And they piled them up on the, on the floor there. And there's a photo from her garage sale. And so what happened was Bruce was just going through the baseball bats and they all looked kind of nondescript to me, but apparently the one on the far right caught his eye because it had a very distinctive handle. And he picked up that bat and to his delight, he realised that it was a famous bat that was owned not, o not only owned by a professional baseball player, but a baseball player who played in the 1940s. And he was the first African-American baseball player to break into the league and his name was Jackie Robinson. And Jackie Robinson had a distinctive curve on his handle that only he used to like. And Bruce saw that handle and straight away went over to Sue and said, how much for the bat? And she said, a dollar. Now, right there and then, he could have taken that bat, which was worth thousands of dollars, and made a pretty penny out of that bat, but he didn't. He said to her, can you get me a pencil? And she went and got a pencil, and he had such a detailed, this, this garbage sale expert, had such a detailed... <laughs> knowledge of baseball history that he, he looked along the bat in the sun and sure enough he saw this etching and he scraped the pencil along the bat and out came the name Jackie Robinson. He said this bat is owned by an American professional baseball player who became the first in the major league and he broke the baseball colour line because before him all the African American players had to play in their own league. 
He was the first one to play in the combined league. And when the Dodgers, who were at the time in Brooklyn, signed him, it heralded the end of the racial segregation in professional baseball that had relegated black players to um, their own league since the 1880s. So Robertson, Robinson, because of that amazing effort, was actually inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962. So this bat that was lying on the ground is worth thousands and thousands of dollars, he said to her. She said, oh, I think I'll keep it then. In the passage tonight, we are going to go through uh, some beautiful passages that unfortunately some people would actually think uh, probably just maybe not a passage to go to very often in the Christian faith. They almost qualify some of these passages to go into the garage sale of the Christian life. Some of the passages that we're going to look at tonight, some Christians have actually thought might even be worth putting in the council cleanup. Because as the world's culture has changed, so some of the teaching of Paul in Ephesians has come to seem to be incredibly anachronistic, old-fashioned and even misogynist. And the opponents of Christianity have often pointed to passages like Ephesians 5 as a reason for people to give up on Christianity and move on. But what I want to suggest tonight is that if we pick up the treasure off the floor, that is this passage tonight, and we get our little pencil out and we scrape along the baseball bat of this discarded item, we might see a word that straight away does not look like it's that impressive. The word is Christian submission. It looks like something that's worth, um, at very least, being a little bit embarrassed about in our day and age by Christians. But I want to suggest tonight that just like the baseball bat that was sitting on the driveway of Sue's place, Christian submission is a treasure that we should pick up off the floor of the driveway and put back on the mantelpiece in our land room because it's one of the most beautiful treasures that we can actually imagine in being a Christian. So I've got a pretty big challenge tonight, because in the next 15 minutes or so, I'm going to try and convince you of the treasure of Christian submission. Some of you may be sceptical tonight, some of you may be not that interested, but what I want to do is I want to suggest that Christian submission is actually part of the outworking of the gospel. Remember when we first started the series and I suggested that the gospel is like a treasure found in a field. Jesus told the parable of a man who goes to go and buy a field and he finds a treasure box in the field and when he sees the treasure box he goes away and sells everything he has so he can buy the field because the treasure is so valuable. The book of Ephesians summarises what's in that treasure box. The gospel treasure includes this word Christian submission. How could that be an anomaly in a treasure box? I want to suggest today that as we try and put our faith into action, Paul encourages us that this is a beautiful gift that I want to show how we use it tonight. Paul encourages us in Ephesians to give up our former life with which we lived in opposition to God and live in unity in the church and in our families. So the great task of the gospel in Paul's mind is to bring unity to disunity. So in a world where human sinfulness has caused us to all walk around like little gods, all competing with each other, the gospel gives us an opportunity to go back to how it was meant to be before the fall. Now, when Paul talks about sin in Ephesians, particularly in Ephesians 5, I want you to notice this. If you've got your Bibles open, you might even just want to cast your eye over Ephesians 5 while I'm talking. 
Because you might notice that most of the sins uh, that are mentioned in the latter half of chapter 4 and 5 are actually sins that destroy harmony in human relationships. We spoke about that last week. To continue in such sins that destroy human harmony, it gives a foothold to the devil in verse 27 of chapter 4. And thus it grieves the Holy Spirit in chapter 4 verse 30. So it's not just that Christianity is another way to live. It's actually moving from darkness to light, according to Paul. So that if we're actually going to grasp the gospel and we're going to live out the gospel, we are going to deny the devil and we're going to please the Holy Spirit. So it's far more than just our own special preferences. Christianity isn't like a department store where you cruise down the aisles of the Bible looking for bits and pieces that you like and putting that into your particular Christian basket. Rather, we should walk the way of Christ. And that's what Paul says to us in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. See, the Lord Jesus Christ has this treasure in mind as he dies for us. The Lord Jesus Christ himself says, I've come to give you new life and life to the full. And here Paul is talking that Christian submission is part of that life. After a series of exhortations to abandon their former ways to the Gentiles, Paul encourages God's people to not walk in the darkness and to walk in the light throughout the whole of chapter 5, verses 3 to 17. And then what Paul does, interestingly, is he doesn't focus on the individual actions of people and individual life of a growing Christian in this section. He looks at what happens to a group of people when they are made new. So his focus is not so much on you actually growing as a Christian at the moment, which is part of this, but he's talking about how are you part of this? How are you part of us? How are you part of, in the Australian vernacular, yous? Because often in Ephesians, Paul talks about you in the plural. Now in our individualistic age, we don't think as much about that as we used to. But Paul focuses on corporate worship here in this section and it takes place in the beginning in the household. Now I want to say from the beginning, the Bible is explicit throughout all its pages that households come in all different shapes and sizes. In the Bible there are single person households, there are single parent households, there are parents without children households, there are parents with children households. But no matter what kind of household you're in tonight, you're part of the building block of the Christian church. Thus, the, the, the exhortation in chapter 5.18 is the key verse here. If we're going to live as a household and move away from disunity to unity, we are going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit if we're going to achieve that. Paul considers that to be a spiritual task. He says in verse 18, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus. And Jesus lived and ministered in community. He not only lived in, and ministered in community with us while he was on this earth, but in eternity he has lived and ministered in community with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity. And so the second half of Ephesians is meant to be that the gift of the Holy Spirit is to give us the gift of unity. Now, the household rules that get set down in Ephesians go from chapter 5, verse 21, to chapter 6, verse 9. That's the section. And the householder that keeps being um, highlighted in this section over and over again is the husband, the father and the master. So here Paul has got a particular interest in writing to those of us in families who have fathers 
uh, husbands or masters. It's addressed in each case in these relationships that we see in this section. There's three sections, one on how husbands and wife relate to each other, one on how children and parents relate to each other, and the final section is on how masters and slaves relate to each other. In each section, the father actually gets singled out. It's a really interesting key element here in making the Christian family work. If the householder is to love his wife, love his children and love the people who he employs, then the only way he can do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit because the husband actually needs to put themselves last and be a model of Christian love that Jesus gave. And you can see that there in 525, for example, where we're encouraged, uh, the, the husband is encouraged, love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what we've got here then, I'm going to argue, is that the gospel of Jesus is actually uh, reversing the impacts of the fall in families. Okay, So if we're going to understand that, what I want to do is briefly go back to what was the impact of the fall on human relationships so that we can understand Ephesians better. Because you can't actually read Ephesians out of context with what went wrong with human relationships in the first place. So as we look at the fall, the best place to go to is, of course, Genesis chapter 3. Because at the fall, we're going to see that Adam is front and centre as the major reason for the fall. Now, don't get me wrong, Adam and Eve contributed to the fall. Both of them fell. Both of them were tempted by the serpent. Eve was involved as well because Eve listened to the serpent who said, why don't you take this fruit off this tree that God says don't eat off? And she did, and she gave it to her husband. But when she gave it to her husband, Adam must have had ringing in his ears what God had asked him to do. When God had created Adam, he didn't make him better than Eve, he just made him first. And when he made him first, he said, you are to be my vicegerent on earth. In other words, you are to live spiritually and you are, ne you are needing to make sure you encourage others to lead spiritually. So that when I present you with your wife, Eve, who will help you lead um, in, in um, that spiritual fashion, and you have children, your family is meant to be uh, a family that looks to me. It's your responsibility, Adam. So God gave Adam a particular responsibility. Now, if we have a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16... There's actually some curses that came along with the fact that Adam and Eve fell from uh, uh, the relationship they had with God because they sinned against God. And basically, you could kind of summarise Adam and Eve's rejection of God as sin and you can kind of summarise sin as a lack of willingness to submit to God's will. So Adam and Eve didn't want to submit to God. They actually wanted to do what they thought was right. And I think it's not a bad definition of sin that we don't want to submit to God, we want to do our own thing. And I think what's interesting when you read passages like tonight, you may find your instinct actually railing against some things. If it's not tonight's passage, you might find it in other passages. I certainly do. You might find it when you go to pray sometimes. I actually think that sometimes Christians find it so hard to pray because we're sinful. Because in praying, we, we are actually coming under God's authority and there's a part of us that doesn't want to do that. Yes, we're forgiven. Yes, we're saved. Yes, we can fight the fight of faith, but we're still sinful. And so we still rail against that. And there's consequences of our sin. This is the thing that this passage is dealing with in chapter 3 of Genesis. This is the consequence to the woman, which is, which is uh, quite confronting. 
To Eve, he said, come up on the screen, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, the dreadful consequence for Eve is that she's gone from a completely safe relationship with her husband that she never at one instant ever questioned or worried about. Adam never lied to her. He never tried to bully her. He never tried to control her. He was always there for her and she was always there for him. But a really interesting symbol of when Adam and Eve sinned is they put clothes on themselves and the clothing was a symbol of self-protection. So for the first time, these two people who had sinned against God now looked at each other and went, I don't know if I can trust you anymore. And so here we see a direct consequence in Genesis that one of the consequences for, for the woman is that she may not actually have a great relationship with her partner going forward with Adam. In verse 17, we see that it's not just Eve that has that consequence, but also Adam. Uh, have a look at verse 17. Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. So struggle and toil is the consequence for Adam. But don't forget there's, in the midst of these curses in Genesis chapter 3, there's a promise. And the promise is actually the curse to Satan who tricked them in the first place. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The first promise to the human race is given to the woman, Eve, that you will have a magnificent part in actually bringing forth a saviour who will come from woman, who will actually right the problem that has just occurred today. This very day when God actually instantly curses Adam and Eve, he's already putting in place a prophecy that Jesus will come to reverse the problem. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we see that explicitly in Paul's writing, where Paul says, as for Adam, uh, sorry, for as in Adam all will die, so in Christ all will made, be made alive. So what you get in scripture is a contrast of sin and rebellion as darkness and death, but communion with God equals submission to him and relationship and unity with one another, and that is called life. In John 10.10, Jesus himself says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And isn't that the truth at the garden? The devil came to thieve away the beautiful relationships they had with each other, to destroy human relationships. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have life to the full. So in the last section of Ephesians chapter 4 and 5, we see how God's plan in Jesus is to reverse the broken relationships of the fall and replace them with new life through the treasure of the gospel. And surprisingly, one of these treasures of the new life in chapter 5 is submission. Have a look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you read that in the context of what Jesus is saying, I've come to fix the problem of sin, what he's doing is he's saying, I don't expect you to submit to one another under the old law that Adam has brought because that would be to your detriment. I am only encouraging you to submit to one another in love if you grasp the new life that I give you. Now, Jesus has died on the cross for our sin and risen to new life and given us the Holy Spirit. Human beings did not have the Holy Spirit poured out to all the believers until Pentecost, after Jesus had risen from the dead and gone into heaven. 
That was the moment where Jesus is saying, I am now starting a new society with a new ethic. And the reason he has the confidence to do that is broken down human beings are now indwelt by a new power system that they didn't have before. Now, I know it's controversial to talk about fossil fuels and you know, renewable fuels these days and nuclear fuels, but the reality is if you take a boat and you put petrol in it, it can last until the petrol runs out. But if you put some nuclear power in it, it can sail around and around in circles for years. It's quite a stark difference, those two fuel sources. And so you can do a lot more in a boat that can go for a lot longer, and so is true with the Holy Spirit. If you take a human being who's not spiritual, they have to, every once a year, have to recommit you know, to sacrificial system and say sorry for their sins year after year after year. But if we accept Christ and we receive the Holy Spirit, we can do things that we couldn't do before. That doesn't make us perfect. But what it does is it makes us actually replace the full relationship definition with a new definition for man and woman again so that men and women don't have to be at enmity with each other in their relationships anymore. And that's not the default. Now we can have victory over sin and we can actually strive towards not perfect relationships, but we can actually start to live the way God intended us to do. And that's why not only with men and women, but all of us can submit to one another in love. Now think of my baseball analogy. The terrible thing about the baseball bat is that it's designed for sport. It's designed for a batter to stand at the, the diamond or whatever they call it and there needs to be, to play baseball, other people. You can't play it by yourself. So there needs to be a pitcher at least and a batter. And the pitcher throws the ball and the batter hits the ball. They're submitting to one another as they play a sport. I don't know if you've ever thought about sport like that before, but you can only play sport if you submit to one another and play together. If you both say you want to design your own rules, you can't play. You need to submit to an, a, a framework if you're going to play baseball. Now, that's not always perfect because we need umpires for when people cheat. But what, what's happened with the cosmic baseball bat and, and the baseball diamond and the baseball game that God has designed men and women to play is that the baseball bat's designed for sport, but people have turned it into a weapon because of sinfulness. And some of you may have seen some of those horrible movies where people get a baseball bat and they use it to hurt somebody else instead of hit a ball with it. And the problem for us, when we hear the word submission, our memories and our ideas go straight to, rightly so, the sinful use of something like submission, where people use passages like this, like a baseball bat, to hurt, not to play a game. If someone is using submission to hurt someone else, it shouldn't be um, accepted. That's not acceptable. You don't let someone hit you with a baseball bat but you do submit to someone who wants to play ball with you and play a ball game with you where it doesn't hurt you. And that's how I think Paul fits the framework around husbands and wives when he talks about submission. And we don't have time to dive into all of this tonight, but what I do want to do is start with the husbands first because the husbands, I think, have the baseball bat. And here in 2531, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or other blemish, but holy and blameless. 
In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but they fed and they cared for the body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body, and for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, what do we want to focus on there? We could spend the whole week talking about this together, couldn't we? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this an awesome picture of being a husband? Love your wife just as Christ loved the church. What that says is Christ loved the church by sacrificing himself for the church. So when a husband makes promises to his new wife at a church service where they commit themselves to each other, the husband is promising to put himself second to her. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before. But Jesus inverts power relationships. He does it all the time and he does it again here. When he came to earth, the living king of heaven came as a servant. Philippians chapter 2 spends a great deal of attention on this. Jesus didn't come to rule and wield a bat to get people to submit to his will. He came to serve and to build up. Now the whole of Ephesians is saying the purpose of the church is to build one another up. In Ephesians 4 earlier in the section, the purpose of the gifts is to build each other up. So my thought is, for the husband to love his wife as Christ loves the church is to build her up and put himself second. Now, unfortunately, gentlemen, we don't always do a great job of that. And rightly so, we should be pulled up when we don't do a good job of that. But that is our role if we become a husband. So if you're a young bloke sitting here today thinking about one day I might get married, you know, not everyone gets married, some people do, some people don't. If you're a young lady here thinking I might get married one day, this is the model that Jesus wants for marriage. For those of us that are married, this is a reminder for us to go back to our source all the time, that we are to love our wife as our own body. To present her to Christ means that every time you cause your wife to cry, husband, God counts her tears. So when you stand before God in judgment day, He's going to know how many tears you caused your wife to cry. And he's going to ask you for an account of why you caused her to cry. (laughs) Because you were there to build her up, not to tear her down. What does that look like in practice? I've used this analogy before and I apologise for those of you who've heard it before, but it's very practical and it's a day-to-day thing, this building up your wife. Uh, Once upon a time, Lou and I lived in a house that was two-storey, kind of split level, at Gormier Bay, Tartha Place. And in winter it was very cold and it was, we used to have an electric blanket. We weren't long married when we lived there and we'd go up to bed and you know, turn the light off in the bedroom, jump into the hot you know, blanket. I, I don't know if you've got an electric blanket, it's one of the greatest inventions of all time. And I'm there in bed, Lou's there in bed, and every now and again we'd have the door closed, we're about to go to sleep, and you'd see the light under the door. Forgot to turn the light off downstairs. So we used to play this game called Paper, Scissors, Rock to see who had to go out into the cold out of the bed to go and turn the light off. And so I go, Paper, Scissors, Rock. And if I won, not only did I win, but I'm like, ha sucker, you've got to go turn the light off. Or she'd go, oh, yeah. And as I'm running down the stairs going, it's so cold, it's so cold, it's so cold. She's like, sucker, sucker. Something like that. Lou doesn't ever say sucker, but she said something like that. I used to, but she didn't. And then one night, 
I'd actually been reading Ephesians and I thought, I'm supposed to be Christ to my wife. And I just said, Lou's just about to do the paper, scissors, rock. And I said, I'll go do it. And she said, seriously? And I said, yeah. She thought I was joking. It was a trick. But it wasn't. I jumped out of bed and I ran downstairs. Oh, it's cold, it's cold, it's cold. I turned the light off, came back. Oh, it's so warm. And she leaned over to me. And I know this is just a little thing, right? She leaned over and she just said, thank you. Now, what did she do in that moment? She submitted to my Christ-likeness. And that's what the idea of this passage is. When it says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, you submit to your husband who is living for the Lord and living for you. And if your husband is going to treat you like that, that's okay to say, I will go along with that. I'll play ball with that. If you want to hit a home run out of the park by getting out and going down to the, turn the light off, I'll, I'll pitch. Let's play. But I tell you what, if you start using that submission in a way it's not intended, I'm out of here. And as a church, we've talked a lot too about the fact that families can be incredibly dangerous and sad places. And if this has brought up issues for you today, please come and see someone because we don't want you to stay in a situation where someone is using this teaching to your detriment. It's meant to encourage men for a higher love. Now, again, we don't have time to look into all the different ways of interpreting this passage, but I just want to mention three tonight. Here in verse 23 where it says, For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which is his saviour. Now, the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. What some people have argued in recent times, some theologians have argued that the Greek word for the head of the wife is not just head as in leader, it could also be translated as source. And so some theologians are saying that the husband is the source of the wife, just as Adam was the source of Eve, he came first, the wife came second. So it's in that reading of this passage, it's not that the man is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, but he's the source. But therein lies what I think is the problem with that particular position, and I am not going to be able to do it justice and do it in detail tonight, so you can come and come back to me if you actually have that position tonight, because I'm very keen to talk. But I think the problem with that is if husband is just the source of the wife, then that just means Christ is the source of the church. But if the church is the body of Christ and he is the head he has a responsibility over the church to serve the church. And I think that the problem with that source idea is that it actually causes problems for other theological connections down the track in the biblical story. But I think what's happened in Genesis is Adam did not pick up his responsibility to be the head of his wife and to lead in godliness. And as a result, the fall took place because it was Adam's fault. And that's what Paul says in, 2 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is saying that actually it's Adam's fault what's going on because he didn't take up that role. The other way of seeing it is, as we talked a couple of weeks ago, there are some people who talk about the fact that the ethics in the Bible are constantly moving. And not that there's time to talk about it tonight, but you could go back to an earlier sermon to have a look at this idea of the redemptive moment. So some people are suggesting that the ethics in Jesus' teaching has given a great deal more respect and autonomy and, and bringing 
bringing women up in society, and that is a contrast to the Old Testament where women didn't have the same role. And in that idea of the redemptive moment, some people are arguing that that redemptive moment doesn't finish in the New Testament, that it continues on into today's age too, that God is moving our ethics along. So that in that argument, they might suggest, for example, that it was culturally relevant for a father to be a good head of his family in a time when that was the culture. But as the ethics of our society have moved on, so we have. But again, my question of that is probably the final reading of this, which is in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32 to 33. The whole point of Adam and Eve's relationship, of the restored relationship between a husband and wife in Ephesians chapter 5, this is a profound mystery in verse 32, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one should also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. I think what the idea of a marriage relationship is supposed to be is when people go along to a baseball game, they're usually quite delighted. They sit there with their hot dogs and their popcorn and whatever they eat at a baseball game, so I don't know, so I've never been to one. Presumably it's quite entertaining and quite delightful. I think the idea of a Christian marriage is it's not perfect, but it should be entertaining and delightful. And that when people see men walking around serving their wives, they're delighted by that. And when they see men putting themselves last in their families, people go, that's nice. And they don't always get it right, and when they don't get it right, they, you know, can have another crack. However, if that gets out of balance and people start wielding that headship like a baseball bat in the wrong direction, then that's where I encourage women and children to get out of that situation. You don't stay in a baseball game when it turns into a riot, you leave the place, which has happened in history. Now, we don't have time to unpack children and parents and slaves and masters tonight. Huge amount of stuff comes out of those passages as well. But it's all coming out of what I've just described from the point of view of the reordering of relationships after the fall because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, if that's brought up anything for you tonight, please come and see me. I'm going to hang around out the front if you'd like to talk about it some more. Uh, I'd love this to be a conversation we continue to have as a church. Uh, this is the... the uh, the beautiful nature of the Christian church that we can have a conversation about faith. I am terribly sorry I've gone a little bit over time tonight. I have tried really hard to pack all this stuff in. It's a very dense uh, topic and I did want to reference other points of view even though I didn't really do them justice because I wanted to show that there are probably people sitting here who might disagree with me and I wanted to honour you tonight. But I also wanted to invite you into conversation. So, you know, if I'd have just ploughed through it from my point of view, we could have been out of here you know, seven or eight minutes ago, but I think that it's actually a good thing to sometimes tarry on that. So I thank you for your patience in that regard. But let me pray for us as we finish, and let's uh, ask God to help us to understand this profound mystery tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching of Paul. We thank you that it's so countercultural. We also thank you, Father, for this amazing uh, situation where we are called to live differently to how we used to. So tonight, Lord God, I pray that you would help us as a church to be different. And whatever household we come from tonight, I pray that we would seek to love others as Christ has loved us. And we pray that you would give us the power to do that through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.